0: say the summer has been hot is, well, being generous. Uh, here in Houston, it was the hottest summer on record. Hobby Airport recorded a temperature of 109 degrees, and we went through weeks with highs well over 100 degrees. At least 15 people died from heat-related causes, including Jose Romero, a 20-year-old exercising in his local park. Only now are the summer temperatures starting to break. Of course, that just means highs in the low to mid-90s. But as summer winds down, I and everyone I know are wondering, is this really our new normal? Is this heat just climate change or are other factors at play? And maybe, most importantly, is there anything we can do to help fight these summer highs in the future? I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in RICE's Environmental Studies Program and the Program Manager of the Deluvial Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and the potential solutions facing our community. Today, we're focusing on an issue that has been front of mind for months for most of us, Heat. Houston has always been wet and humid, (laughs) but this summer gave us a taste of what climate change means going forward. But it's important to note that climate change isn't the only culprit in Houston's higher temperatures, and that notably, not all communities in the area are affected equally by the rising temperatures. Numerous other causes go into this problem, including issues of equity around parks and green space, as well as the very surfaces that we use to to build our city, pavement, rooftops, all of these factors combine to make what we often refer to as a heat island in urban areas. Do you have a story about how this brutally hot summer has impacted you? Or a question about what can be done to address the rising temperatures? Give us a call at 713-526-5738, extension 2. That's 713 526 extension 2. As I'm very excited to welcome Jaime Gonzalez, uh, the Community and Equitable Conservation Programs Manager at the Nature Conservancy of Texas. Jaime, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Um, And I want us to start off, and I want to say that for the last two years... I've been working on a project that's primarily about flooding, and a lot of my research pertains to to flood recovery. Um, And ever since I met you, you've been saying that heat is going to get us before the water does. Um, And this summer, I think that kind of came home for me in a very real way. Um, So I I know this is an issue that's been front and center for you for a long time. Can you start us off just by telling us a little about your role at the Nature Conservancy um, and when you first started working on urban
1: heat? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for for having me here today. So I actually uh, spent a career, uh, most of my career, working on um, ecological restoration, both kind of in rural environments and here in the city. And mostly early in my career was about ecological restoration for nature's sake, for biodiversity, and for um, uplifting things like bird species and pollinator species. As I progressed in my career, I started to understand kind of these dynamics with equity, um, with uh, the disproportionate burden that some communities have. And so when Hurricane Harvey hit in 2017, um, we saw a seismic shift, right, in this community and how it responds to disaster. And then who is left out of the kind of rebounding process? And so um, I was hired on by the Nature Conservancy in early 2018 to try to find a way to use nature and to work with nature, not against nature, to help with flooding, to help with other issues um, in terms of equity. And what I found pretty quickly was that the flooding um, ecosystem of action was pretty well outfitted with groups and um and, but there was very little conversation happening about urban heat, and we knew that the city had been getting hotter measurably um, over time since the 1970s. But what we didn't fully understand was the extent of the heat um, because we really hadn't mapped it. And we also hadn't at that point had the climate impact assessment that the city of Houston would eventually release. And so we got busy with the city and the county in um, a group called HARC in terms of mapping the heat, and we did that in August of 2020. And once that map came out, it really gave us our marching orders. We understood that some communities were really um, much more impacted by heat and are much more climate vulnerable than others. Not surprisingly, many of those communities were disinvested communities and had a lack of nature equity. Um, so those kind of compounding Issues and so you know a lot of this work around urban heat is really like you said this summer has put a very fine point on what we have the road ahead to to get to a fairer and more safe and more equitable place.
0: Thanks. So you're talking about equity here, and I, I think for for listeners, can you can you walk us through a little bit? I mean, heat feels like something that should be you know everywhere and it's impacting us equally. How is it that even heat is getting into uh, different regions of our city in different levels and in different ways that it becomes an equity issue. Can you talk more about what that looks like and and how
1: that even is? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that the, you have several different um, things that are playing off each other. I think that when we talk about heat, um, oftentimes what we hear is, you know, Houston's always been hot. And I grew up here um, up in the Aldine area when I was a kid, didn't have air conditioning in an old farmhouse, and so I can tell you, yeah, it's always been hot here in <laughs> Houston for sure. But the level of heat that we're experiencing now um, is is tremendous and it's historic. So a lot of people don't know there's actually two portions of heat. One is the daytime temperatures have risen dramatically. We just came off our hottest. Um, you know, summer in history is also extremely dry, which is having a lot of impact on trees, which we need to cool ourselves. But a lot of people don't know that it's really getting hotter at night. Since 1970, the Houston area on average, in the summertime, the temperatures have gone up by more than five degrees. So if you're a a laborer outdoors, you have an outdoor occupation, and you're either without air conditioning or you're under air condition, um, you go out, you work, you get really hot, then you come home, and these rising temperatures, you know, we saw lows in the 80s this summer. So your body physiologically doesn't have time to cool off, and that's when heat injury and um, and all the things that cascade from that, whether it's a loss of income, um, unfortunately, in some cases, loss of life, um, or just injury can really take a toll. And so you get this cascading effect of heat. And so I know
0: one of the things you were talking about is this this heat map. And so can mm-hmm. you tell us some about, I mean, if you're mapping this out, what does that actually look like? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you talk about different neighborhoods, like, how much difference is there really between two different parts of town?
1: Yeah, I think that the difference is dramatic. Um, and we saw this during the heat mapping. And if you want to see the heat mapping, you can just go to heat.org where just replace the E with a three. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's Houston – Harris heat. So there's the there's the three, but um, but yeah, it can vary greatly. So what we found on that one snap snapshot um, in August um, of 2020 was that the coolest recorded community was about 17 degrees cooler than the hottest community. Wow. The hottest community being Golfton, which I, I'm working on heat interventions using nature-based solutions and many wonderful um, partners, including Harris County Precinct Four. Um, and so what you have is you're setting up a dynamic where some neighborhoods on that map are appearing as extremely dark red, purple. And then the cooler communities, if you can visualize this, are kind of white, pinkish, right? 17 degrees difference in August can mean the difference between waiting at the bus stop and getting heat stroke or not. So it's not just uncomfortable. You know, I was out doing filming in Gulfton the other day and there was enough heat latent in the concrete that you can feel it through your shoes. And I was very mindful of this as we were doing the filming because we had kids getting released from school and walking, traversing large blocks that were untreated. You had moms with strollers getting their kids to the supermarket. So these are real lived everyday experiences. And I think that sometimes what happens is those of us who have Uh, more resources and can be go from an air-conditioned car to an air-conditioned house um, and live in very leafy neighborhoods it's kind of out of sight out of mind but if you talk with residents or if you go experience some of these things it is very much an everyday um, impact and this is
0: absolutely something that's growing as well so even for those of us who are living in our comfortable airy sea lives and, as you say, kind of in our leafy areas, you know, how much protection that actually offers if these numbers continue to climb continues to <laughs> just be a, a spiral that we're, we're looking at. Um, and so something that I, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, you talk about Gulfton. I'm wondering what are some of the factors in Gulfton that are making it so much hotter, than other parts of of houston
1: yeah so i think that you know although i work in gulfden um heat is definitely just not building up in gulfden you know alief is another really hot community Mm -hmm. needs trees the county's doing some work on trees there my home community of Aldine um has some extraordinarily hot temperatures we found that in the in the heat mapping and and it's also um site specific right so you have to really look at like where do people live their lives every day? So, if you're a metro rider, well, that's a point. If you're at a school, that's a point that's very important for your everyday life. If you are, like I said, traversing to um, go to the supermarket and you don't have transportation or you're under trans, you know, you have limited transportation options. So, some of the factors that make it make hot neighborhoods hot neighborhoods is one is tree canopy cover. So, we know that there are we have really detailed. Um, What's called lidar data, which is really like radar, mm. um, that looks at the, kind of the three dimensional structure of our urban forest in in, in Harris County. Uh, it's been there's some, been some really great work uh, by Dr. Ryan Bear up at, at Hark Research. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing neighborhoods that have a poorly developed canopy. So in order to get kind of really great cooling for a neighborhood, you need like thirty to forty percent tree canopy cover. Okay. In places like um, Gulfton and some of the zones there, you have, you know, nine to 12% canopy cover. So one is lack of tree canopy cover. Oftentimes these places also have a, an an overabundance of concrete and asphalt and metal and hard structures. And so not only are, are they not shaded by canopy of trees, they're also, they have heat absorbing and heat releasing surfaces. So One of the things that is really kind of interesting to do and just a little bit horrifying, actually, is to take a picture of a neighborhood at night with a thermal camera. So thermal cameras, you're not going to see the visual image, but you're going to see the heat. And -hmm. as you take pictures of these neighborhoods at night, you will see that some of the surfaces that people have to traverse or drive on are blazing hot, even at 9 o'clock at night when you can't even see the sun anywhere.
0: Is this significantly different than during the day? I mean, so it's just hot all the time, is what you're saying. It,
1: it is hot all the time, but what happens with these surfaces is they heat up during the day, and it kind of is a is a bank for energy, and then it starts to re-release that in the afternoon and evening. So even when the sun is not shining, what you have is this release, this tremendous release of energy that warms up the air and everything else. So, so it is uh, this latent heat is really. Um, is a very important thing that it, once the sun goes away, the heat doesn't go away.
0: So you, you've already brought up trees, and I absolutely want to talk about trees, mm-hmm. and I, I know you're going to want to get to, to nature-based solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think since we brought up this, this culprit to some degree of mm-hmm. pavement and mm-hmm. hard structures, you know, are there solutions to that? Are there other ways of thinking mm-hmm. about the very infrastructure of our city that could be doing more to combat this issue?
1: Yeah, so there's a couple of questions. Uh things that come up from that question. It's a great question. The way I look at it is we have many, many underperforming spaces and and textures to the city. Or damp- what, what do you mean by underperforming spaces? <laughs> <laughs> this, this is what I mean. This is what I mean. So if you look at if you drive around Houston, we have concreted more than we need to concrete. Mm. Um there are many places if you just drive around, just do a test, like drive around. Look at places like, and ask yourself, like, did we actually need to concrete that? <laughs> also, I want you to ask yourself, like, do we need this much amount of mowed lawn? Um, lawns are kind of a, a hidden factor in our heat. A lot of people look at lawns, they're green, they look lush. They oftentimes look like they're super cool, but the truth is when I've done heat mapping um, and kind of empirical measurements in the city, a lot of those lawns are approaching 100 degrees on these hot days. Um, They're hard, compacted soil. They don't absorb much water relative to other surfaces, Mm. Um, and they don't really help us with heat all that much. And so what you have to do is you have to ask yourself, how can we change the literal surfaces Mm. in many different ways? Um, And some of the ways that you can do that is – You know, L.A. and other very hot communities in the southwest are experimenting with reflective paint that can go on streets or sidewalks.
0: So what does that that do?
1: Yeah, so the idea there is that you you paint these streets with special paint that reflects the light. So it doesn't get absorbed into the concrete and doesn't contribute in that way. Those gains have been fairly modest. I was just reading a scientific report on that. So you're talking about a change of temperature of about 3 degrees. But in a place that is, you know, uh, looking to cool at all, that's good. I think one of the, the big things we can do, and this if you, if you were ever in the Texas Medical Center and you go up to one of the top floors, take a look over the Texas Medical Center. Most of the roofs there are white. They have okay. painted them white to reflect the heat. That reduces uh, the energy cost for the building, but it also reduces the heat. Um, and heat kind of builds up an area. So anytime you can have a reflective surface or a shading surface, is great. Um, sometimes there are things you can do such as using other natural surfaces. And what I mean by that is I do a lot of work where we put in urban grasslands and the grasslands that we've been measuring, these urban prairies have cultural significance, but they also absorb a lot more water and they're significantly cooler. So, um, we've measured temperature differences between that and you know, these pocket prairies and lawns of 13 degrees wetlands, which we need to absorb more water. Um, those are also much cooler because they're using that that magic of transpiration in the plants to, to take water through their body and use the temperature, the heat around their bodies to evaporate that. And so mm-hmm. anywhere you can put plant material, whether it's trees or prairies or wetlands, you are going to get cooling. They're all like little mini air conditioners um, spread throughout the city. So lawn doesn't do that real well because it doesn't have very deep roots. It's compacted. And although it's it's transpiring, it doesn't work quite the same way. And that's why it's just hotter.
0: Okay, purely because I, I know you have an answer to this. <laughs> um, you know, let, let's pretend for a moment I'm a, a Houston homeowner with a lawn, and I've just discovered, ah, my lawn isn't doing maybe all the work that I thought it was doing, of <laughs> sitting there and being grass. It's right, good, right? right? What what are things that I could do to maybe <laughs> make my lawn uh, you know marginally more proactive on this problem?
1: Yeah, no, I, I love that you asked that question because— if we're going to get to a cooler place, uh, a place that's spongier, a place that's healthier, we start to have to think of typology. So you have to think about what are these different types of places that we live and play and work in. And one of these is our lawns. Um, so a couple of thoughts there. One is you really have to think about, from my perspective, like what lawn do you actually need? Hmm. If you're, you know, a young family and you've got little kids and they're running around, you might need a bigger lawn. But if you're older, don't have kids, or don't use your, your lawn recreationally, you might really want to think about putting in some garden beds, either growing some food for yourself or growing food for animals or putting in shrubs. So I, I tend to drive around the, the city and look at, at lawns and I go, okay, well, that's a climate-friendly lawn.
0: What makes a climate-friendly lawn?
1: Well, a couple of things. One is, is that lawn full of plants that are... Taking carbon out of the air and putting it in their bodies or putting it down in the soil. So, shrubs and trees, wildflower gardens, food gardens, hmm. that kind of thing. Also, I mean, I think a lot of people don't quite think about this, but, you know, um, mowing is extremely uh, contributory to climate change in that it is throwing up a lot of carbon dioxide every time you mow. And it also throws up lots of toxic chemicals because oftentimes these two-stroke motors, they burn both uh, gasoline and oil at the same time. So mm-hmm. it throws up a lot of particulate matter, a lot of noxious gases that which, which can contribute to ozone. So lawns are not um, a neutral landscape. They actually can be climate-damaging. And, and air quality damaging.
0: I was going to say, this, this gets us to the health concerns at all, as well. That, I mean, that's a, a real thing that, you know, we, we were talking about creosote last week. But mm-hmm. as we continue to think about environmental health, mm-hmm. as we continue to, to talk through these other ramifications, yeah, I don't think most of us look at our lawns and think, ooh, this could be actually harmful to me or my children.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, I, you know, I've been thinking about writing an op-ed called The Ugly <laughs> Facts of Pretty Landscapes. And, and it's true. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, the law and right was really created as a status symbol mm. um, in Europe. It was, we're the people who are actually wealthy enough to keep grass at this <laughs> level, right? And we imported that idea as a status symbol. And that's all good and fine, except... That was made for a different world. We don't live in that world anymore. We can't afford to have landscapes that are underperforming um, and that take a lot of inputs and then put a lot of dirty stuff out, right? So it's also water pollution that comes off of lawns, right? So Mm -hmm. it, it really, it's a systematic look at what is the value set that you're trying to instill, right? If you want healthier, spongier, cooler places, then we need to really think about um, and when I say lawn, yeah, sure, you have, like, private lawns, and you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of those. So that's a very big land category. But also think about big public parks or big school grounds or power lines or other places where we're mowing mostly out of habit mm. at this point. And they could be converted to make us all healthier and more resilient.
0: Yeah, I mean, when you when you bring up those spaces in particular, I mean, that's massive amounts of our, our kind of green space around mm-hmm. town that we could be thinking about, and so that's yeah, that that gives me a whole new set of ideas around how we're. It, it's interesting because this is really about space utilization yes. in so many ways, right? Right. right. Um, and the fact that we started this and we're coming back to heat as well, mm-hmm. but you know, I think the interconnectedness of not just the, the, the fear and the concerns of heat, but that you're hitting on environmental health. We're talking about water retention, something we're deeply concerned about here, cleaning water, the way that these these areas and um, solutions overlap. And so I, I think, you know, I, I want to give you the space. To, I know you, you certainly talk about nature-based solutions, mm-hmm. but also One Health a lot mm-hmm. and the way these things are interconnected. And so can you talk a little about your thinking on the interconnection between these myriad
1: issues? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, um, as as my work has evolved in conservation, I understand that there are many, many groups and sectors that are working on earth care. It's not just conservation. What, What is earth care? It's a bigger construct in that if you think about the environmental justice movement, it's working on so many different things that need to be worked on, um, At the end of the day, they're really working for clean air, water, soil, and a healthy climate Mm. so that those who love we love are protected. So they're working on environmental quality. Um, You have many um, communities of faith that are working on environmental justice issues or environmental issues in this town. Oftentimes, those groups are not connecting, and they're not connecting with conservation or public health, which also has a very vested interest in making sure that we have nature equity for mental health and physical health and cultural health and spiritual health. So what you have is an opportunity right now to get, and, and then the last piece is you have indigenous leaders here who oftentimes are not um, brought into conversations about what a healthy community looks like or could look like or how it could be more culturally deep and relevant. And so there's this opportunity right now to work to bridge these interests and these shared values and this shared need and the challenge of this moment to say let's come together and commune around how we can build a more verdant, more healthy and more equitable fair, safe place. Um, and And the other piece of this in terms of one health, I think of it as a dance floor. And you have all these potential dancers, all these different sectors. We're not going to dance to every song. (laughs) We're not going to like all the same songs. But every once in a while, there's going to be something really cool that we're going to want to dance around. And one of those things is how do we work with nature to protect the communities that we love? Human communities, absolutely. But also, we have a tremendous responsibility to save indigenous species here. We are very gifted here in Houston. A lot of people don't know how biodiverse we are. And what losing that biodiversity would mean, not only to those species, but to creating a safe ecosystem for all of us to live here. It's all connected, and that's, that's why I'm working with um, uh, colleagues on this One Health construct, because it is able to hold all of these things in an equitable way where people show up as themselves, not as what we want them to be.
0: So you've you've talked a a good bit about biodiversity, and I'm wondering if you can define that. What what is biodiversity, and why is it significant in this conversation?
1: I'm so happy you asked me that, because (laughs) I literally just got a briefing from our communications team on what not to use, and biodiversity was one of those terms. Uh, so, So just in brief, and if you think about Houston, we have lots of wild birds, we have Um, lots of uh, wild mammals and fungi and flowers and grasses and trees and shrubs and on and on and on so basically biodiversity is all the species that live here both the ones that have been indigenous here many of them have been here for tens of thousands of years and those that we brought over for any number of reasons aesthetics food what have you so it's that whole sum total of all the living beings here and that includes human beings because we're part of nature um so you know those species um you know we are one of two what are called biodiversity hotspot cities in the United States the what other being mean? LA oh okay and what that means is that our the number of species that we have is exceptional hmm. and the number of species that LA has are exceptional but these two places are under extreme risk for development and loss of habitat and loss of species so it is this that it, it is it's this moment in time where what we have is we have a city that is driven by diversity, both human diversity and biological diversity. They're exceptionally rich, rich. They're both at risk from the same forces, both historic environmental justice forces and climate change and developmental forces. So I don't tend to think of the needs um, of and rights of human beings um, being in conflict with the needs and rights of wildlife, they're actually often, often facing the same bad systems. So it's really living things against bad systems that are both historic and chronic, and some are you know, fairly new. And I think if we can think about whole living communities where you have the people and you have all the things that live in and around us and depend on us, I think we can get to a better place in terms of urban planning and and living and creating creating a memorable place. You know, um, one one thing that sometimes gets overlooked in these conversations is when we deploy native species or indigenous species back into communities. We're helping to tie people back to the culture, to the history, to what made us us and what shaped us. Right. The direct opposite, as you know, is a strip mall. <laughs> a strip mall could be put on the surface of Mars, and you'd know no difference because it's, it is the, it's the destroyer of placemaking, mm. strip malls are. And so when, when I put in a, a pocket prairie or a pocket forest or – What's a pocket prairie? A pocket prairie, <laughs> yeah. What the heck is that? So at one point, a lot of folks don't know that most of the greater Houston area was covered by this incredibly diverse wild grassland called A Coastal Prairie.
0: I think that's really important, right? Because it is something that I, I have a lot of conversations with folks, and they immediately jump to, you know, oh, what, what would Houston have looked like pre-development? it mm. oh, must have been oak trees everywhere, right? And this, this kind of giant forest. And I, I, I think, you know, grassland is is not <laughs> giant forests of oak trees. So yeah, I mean, give us a little of what, what was that yeah. pre-development Houston like?
1: So the way I look at urban planning and the way I do my work in the city and regionally as well as I have to be able to understand what is the deep time history. So I, mm-hmm. I typically think go back to right before the big mammals were made extinct here back in the ice age by the early people. <laughs> okay. So you're going far because, back. <laughs> because there is a whole connected line of forces and actions that people have taken to shape the world that we live in now. Mm. And so these, these prairies would have existed everywhere that you can think of except along the creeks and the ravines and the bayous. Those would have been wooded for the most part and then there would be these small islands of trees or these belts of pine trees that would have crossed. But most of what you think about is Houston, Sugarland, Pearland, Katy, um, parts south, um, some parts of you know north of Buffalo Bay. These were all a huge very wild grassland. We had everything from cougars to jaguars, wolves, coyotes, you name it. We, this was a wilderness a writ large and buffalo herds and all of that. And what came out of that is what's interesting is I always say that the people shape the land, but the land shapes the people, right? So we have all these cultural call-outs from when we were a prairie. So the rodeo and buffalo or barbecue and country music and blues to a certain degree and going and taking pictures in blue bonnets. But but the as the, the ecosystem itself became rarer and rarer, we lost the connection between the cultural aspects and the ecosystem. And as we planted more and more trees, we even lost the look of the place. Mm-hmm. So that if you move here or if you've lived here your entire life you probably really did think like, oh, what a shame. We cut a, a big ancient forest down to build this city. But the truth is, is this was a giant grassland for the most part.
0: Which is really fascinating because I think this bridges well. So you're talking about pocket prairies, you know, as these smaller kind of spaces that presumably do a lot of work mm-hmm. around water cleanup. Mm-hmm. And certainly I imagine are better for the heat issue than yeah. Uh, than, yeah, that just mown lawn we've mm-hmm. been talking about. But it also points to, I, th- I think, kind of everyone's quick and easy solution to heat is we come back to trees. And you did mention the importance of canopy. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you've talked some about equity. And, I, I, yeah, the, the American forest uh, found that 2.4 million more trees would be needed in the city to achieve equity. Yeah, and so, I mean, that's that's a staggering number, and I, and I think we often throw out large goals. The moment the city does have a, a plan for 4.6 million new trees, I believe. Um, and so, I'm wondering if you can talk. A little about this both the value yes of trees as a solution to this but also the complexities around that of how hard that actually is to achieve and and some different issues related to that but you know is is trees a one you know a a silver bullet (laughs) to just take care of heat for the city
1: yeah so no it's very it's much more complicated than what you see and you outline that very well if you look at million planting millions of trees um Yes, this is the city that, you know, helped put somebody in the moon. Let's shoot big. <laughs> but also, let's go ahead and be very cognizant of the really true restrictions that we have. Um, and here's what I mean by that. You have both fiscal constraints. You know, the city doesn't have a lot of money right now. Uh, that's no deep, dark secret. <laughs> um, and and so it's going to cost, you know, a lot of money to to have that many number of trees. One of the things that's really increasing the cost of trees is you have to now often water those trees for not two years, like what we would have done historically, but three to four years. And every time you water trees, it is super expensive, especially in a drought like this where everybody wants trees. And so the price is just kind of surge pricing that happens, right? Mm. Unless you have a long-term contract. So I was talking with somebody that's responsible for um, really getting – a certain number of trees that have been planted in the last couple of years to a place of safety, right? Watering them for long. And, you know, watering 10,000 trees every year is like a million bucks. So if you start doing those numbers. And that's not planting them. That's just the the watering. (laughs) So we just got a uh, a competitive grant, our community, Houston, Harris County, and nonprofit partners for $15 million. It was announced last week through a community and urban forestry plan uh, or funding that came from the USDA with, with Inflation Reduction Act money. That's fantastic because it can cause some systemic changes that can help us mm-hmm. think about not only how do we create pipelines for, for young folks to get into forestry, but also buy the trees, you know, maintain the trees, water the trees, all of that. But that is um, as staggering a number as $15 million is. is we're going to need a lot more money than that to really make this a thing. And we're going to have to use heat mapping, sociological data, and other things to really go to worst first, in my mind, right? So all of the funding that we just got for $15 million can only go to disinvested neighborhoods, to neighborhoods that have not gotten their fair shake of trees, which is great. And we need to take that attitude because right now, still in Houston, folks who have money get trees, And that's just the hard fact of it, which is um, if you are in a, a neighborhood that has less income and you can't afford the trees, oftentimes you don't get the trees. And this is why we have the canopy disparities that we do. The other thing I'll say, and this is really we need to take this seriously, is taking a seed or an acorn and growing up a tree to a certain maturity, whether it's three gallons or five gallons or 15 gallons or 30 gallons, whatever you're going to grow it up to is very labor and 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 money intensive yeah there are some other principles for these large public spaces that we can use we can use some form of rewilding well, here's what I mean by that yeah instead of planting every single tree and raising it and doing all the costs there are plenty of pioneer species here that are extremely tough what's a pioneer species a pioneer species is oftentimes you'll hear them called trash trees. <laughs> Okay. So it, it, oh, okay. It, All it, right. it, these are not the trees that I love.
0: These are not the live
1: oaks around town, right? But what they are, they're species like sugar hackberry mm-hmm. or green ash or other species that really come in on their own. They establish, they grow, they're tough. They're making it through this drought like nobody's business. Okay. And what they do is they, they lay the table, they set the table for those majestic oaks and other trees that we um, want. So it, it, it happens in a cycle where the pioneer species come in. They grow up shade, provide shade for these slower-growing trees. The slower-growing trees eventually will grow them, and you'll have this majestic forest. So what would it be like to take sections, big sections of parks that have been mowed for no reason, except that's what we've done, or schoolyards, or college campuses, or wherever we're talking about, stop mowing them. See which species come up, which pioneer species come up. Then take out the trees that we don't like that are invasive or have other characteristics we don't want. And then in between those trees, put in acorns, put in sweet balls, put in other species. And so you can create a forest, I think at a fraction of the cost, and you can revegetate large areas that need revegetation.
0: I think that's great also because, you know, I, there's like 33 million trees in Houston, roughly. And I saw a statistic that 70% of which is young trees, less than five years yeah. old. And so, like, I, I do not want people to walk away from this episode thinking I am anti-tree. <laughs> <laughs> I love trees. I just think trees are, are, are such a complex solution mm-hmm. because they require that maintenance. Yeah. They, you know, they require time. And we should absolutely be investing in them. But they can't be the whole solution to this problem. Um, so I see we have a question from Joe. So we're going to go over to Joe and and hear from him. Hi, Joe, you're on. Um, can you can you tell us your question?
2: Yeah, I have a question. Um, it it um it seems like you know you're using federal taxpayer money um, to maintain a, a handful of urban trees. Um, you know, in a city, which you know, it, it seems like um, kind of a wasteful government solution when. You know, uh, it will be, wouldn't it be better to kind of like, um, make it damn near impossible to, uh, cut down one of the adjacent forests that are, seem to be dropping left and right around here? Um, you know, that, um, ma- maintaining individual trees and in neighborhoods was what I'm hearing or strips of trees or areas to water them. I mean, shouldn't that be homeowner responsibility to water trees or, uh, uh you can get, pick, pick one of these one of these things and maybe pick it apart but it seems like an awful waste of taxpayer money to to manage urban trees um when when you know developers can go and wholesale slaughter forests um uh and and with with very little paperwork or they can just pencil with the environmental studies no issues anyway i look forward to your answer
0: Thanks, Joe. So, yeah, I I think, um, yeah, Jaime, if you want to jump in on that, certainly the Nature Conservancy protect the areas around urban areas are also important. But, yeah, I mean, what what do you think of that?
1: Yeah, no, it's an excellent question, but I think it's an and question. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is we need to protect as much um, land as possible because these large parcels of land are not only just the the arcs of of wildlife and fish and their survival is dependent on it. They do huge amounts of good for our region in terms of keeping it cooler and also keeping it spongier. So yeah, I mean I, I every time I cry inside when I see these giant tracts of forest or prairies or wetlands going under the under the bulldozer. But we do know that from a kind of usage from a community standpoint, that there are many places that people need to to utilize which are in the public realm. They're in the public domain, the public right-of-way. So in those areas, it is incumbent upon the government as a social service to provide those sorts of services for those folks. And also we can be encouraging people, as we talked about earlier, to be thinking about their yards or their zones of spheres of influence, whether it's schoolyards or whatever, as a part of the solution. But I think it's – I think that we need to really be focusing on saving what we can save and restoring what we can restore. It's an and in my mind. I completely agree, Senad. I'll also throw out that you know urban environments uh, fall into that heat
0: island effect uh-huh. that we mentioned a little bit, uh-huh. where they actually get substantially uh, warmer and hotter uh-huh. than the outlying areas because uh-huh. of these factors we've talked about with infrastructure, pavement, and so. Really recognizing the dangers in an urban environment is also really critical, and I think we do deserve those resources to to protect those of us who who live within cities, which certainly is sometimes a private homeowner issue, but is also a collective need. Um, good. Okay. We have Chuck with a question on rooftops. Chuck, you're on the air. What's your question?
2: Hi. Good afternoon. Yes. Uh, I've heard that the actually, the color of the roofs can make a big difference in uh, whether they're dark or light color. Is, is there any truth to that? And, and also, I know there's some uh, buildings in the medical center where they actually have gardens on their rooftop that they claim to help things
0: thanks chuck yeah there was a great piece in the new york times today on uh singapore and green roofs Mm -hmm. and kind of greening the city in different ways jaime you did talk a little about you know (laughs) painting uh paint colors um and so certainly i think we can uh we can say that's that's a a factor but also yeah if you want to talk about green roofs some
1: yeah so I, i think there's a couple things there an excellent question i think in terms of the color absolutely the color Definitely uh, has a factor in temperature. Um, just what you see on the roads, the darker the color, the more heat absorptive. Sometimes it's the material that gets used. So sometimes if you're using metal roofs, they're more reflective. They have a what it's called a higher albedo. They they reflect the light more easily. So it's color. It's um, it's the actual composition of the material. Now as far as green roofs are concerned, it's um you know it's a really Underutilized thing here in Houston, which has the climate to grow roofs, it has a lot of water to grow green roofs. Um, ironically, one of the best places uh, you can showcase is outside of Singapore, which is kind of otherworldly in terms <laughs> of what they've been able to do, is is Germany. Really? There are yes. You wouldn't think it, but I mean, in Germany, there is a huge green roof movement. More locally, um, one thing that we're doing is we're working with a coalition of partners to think about green roofs on bus stops, oh, and wow. those green roofs on bus stops would serve several functions, right? It would um, it would obviously cool the bus stop, which is oftentimes pretty hot, but it would also introduce more nature into what are called nature deprived neighborhoods, Na- neighborhoods that just don't have enough nature, in it, mm-hmm. like Gulfden and parts of um, Leaf and Aldine and other places, so what you're looking at are what we call stacked benefits. You don't, you know, you don't do one intervention for one reason. You do it mm. to go six or seven deep. And one other thing that we haven't mentioned, I think is super super important is this, and and you should definitely put a fine point on this. We started off this discussion by talking about the role of water and flooding. A lot of folks don't know that these are not disconnected issues. The hotter the city the, the heavier the inundation and the more likely it is to get flooding. So the hotter the city gets, the worse our flooding is going to be, right? So these are not disconnected. And so anything we can do to cool the city is going to also have that. And, and there was there were some studies by researchers at Princeton and other places that kind of calculated how much more rain we got or how much more likely it would be that we got a strong inundation from Harvey just because the physical makeup of the city made it hotter, and it was mm. substantial.
0: I think yeah. I think you, you've continued to point to those interrelated, you know, concerns and how all of these these factors work together. So, I, thank you again for bringing that up. I will. I, I'll ask two really quick. I know you've mentioned in Gulfton uh, quite a bit. I, I believe 500 new trees are going into Gulfton now uh, as part of some of the work you've been doing. Um, i've heard you talk before as well about areas that you know like a bus stop where you might not actually have space for a full Mm -hmm. tree Mm -hmm. what are some things we can do in spaces like that
1: no that's a that's a great question so earlier this earlier (laughs) (laughs) earlier in the um, earlier in the um year we got an opportunity to we knew that we needed more trees but we didn't know how many trees we could fit so we went out with texas and forest service we know with really four great foresters and we physically measured where trees could go based on infrastructure. And we thought it was going to be about 500. it actually turned out to be about 800 oh wow okay which was fantastic. and and trees for Houston just got a really generous gift to forward their amazing work. And so they're actually going to pay for the trees that are going to go into Gulfton, And we think it's going to start later this year, early in 2024, which is fantastic. It's going to take a while for them. I'm actually working with a group of ecologists right now to pick the species that will go into the neighborhood, which is super fun. I'm just totally <laughs> geeking out on that. Um, but here's the deal. We all know places in Houston, including downtown within communities and places where you literally don't have enough uh, soil or yeah. enough right away to plant trees. So we're gonna have to figure out some stuff. So one of the things that we did is we worked with a firm called Ultra Barrio and Connect Communities to envision what a modular shade structure mm. could look like so that if there's a super hot block and there's not enough room for trees, the, the, the solution to that is not you have to traverse this neighborhood and be super hot or get sick. That's a that's a non starter. So what we're doing is we're looking at concepts that could be deployed in places and if you go if you go back and this is why you need to know history if you go back and look at downtown Houston before air conditioning at these old pictures almost every single building had an awning that yeah. shaded people as they were traversing between buildings we took all of those off once we got <laughs> air conditioning not smartly and so that needs to come back this whole notion that we can just be inside creatures um, is not healthy for us in so many ways, and it disconnects us from neighbors. It makes us feel more lonely, and it just has all these things. So we need to think about where and how we can produce shade. And just one more point. I was one of the folks that worked with the city of Houston on what's was what the first Children's Outdoor Bill of Rights. These are 12 principles for why the outdoors is really critical mm. and, and equitable for kids. One of the points was right to shade. Mm. And that is critical because without shade – People are not going to go outside. They're not going to be as healthy, and they're not going to get all the benefits.
0: Great. I think we have one time for one quick question from Lane. Um, if we can get Lane on. Hi, Lane. You're on the air. What's your question?
2: Hi there. Uh, I have a 70-year-old house. Uh, used to have great, lots of old oak trees, lots of shade, thick grass. Uh, the oaks faded out over the years, and then this last summer drought and heat wave killed the grass. And I'm wondering... What kind of native wild ground cover should I put in? I've left the uh, the pioneer species, the fast-growing tracks trees. <laughs> shade. Good for you. But uh, I love the way you put that. And that's a new word for me. Pioneer species. And uh, but you know what can I where can I get native ground cover that's going to be heat resistant for next year's summer's uh, heat wave and drought?
1: Fantastic question. So one thing I would do is I would maybe um, go to a couple of our partners. Houston Audubon Society has a really wonderful nursery where you can buy plants. There's a species called frog fruit, which is <laughs> it's got a great name, but it also is a low-growing native ground cover that will feed honeybees. But it, you can also mow it, which is fantastic. If you also I, I put in four ex, you know experimental frog
2: fruits uh, <laughs> some weeks ago, and I tried to water them every day, and it just the sun just killed them. They were in direct sun all day long, and I think I maybe need to plant them later when it's more wet and cool.
1: That's right. Or get them started on the shady area and then let them creep out. Um, But you can also go to the Native Plant Society of Texas, their website, the Houston chapter, and they have lots of suggestions.
0: Great. Fantastic. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Jaime, I think we are running rapidly into the end of our time, so I just want to thank you so much for being here today and for sharing all of this with us. Um, I I want to go to a quick segment from our researcher, Sienna Yen, on a way to get involved coming up here in Houston in the coming weeks. Uh, If we can go to Sienna.
3: Hey, y'all. This is Sienna coming to you with an opportunity to get involved this weekend. The Houston Community Climate Summit, a free one-day event dedicated to addressing the pressing climate challenges in our community, is happening Saturday, September 30th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the University of Houston, downtown. Whether you're an environmental enthusiast, a concerned citizen, or a professional working in the field, this summit offers a platform to learn, collaborate, and contribute towards a greener Houston. You'll have the opportunity to engage in thought-provoking discussions, attend informative workshops, and meet individuals who share a common goal of combating climate change. The diverse range of speakers will share their insights and experiences, providing valuable knowledge and inspiration for taking action. This is a coming together of frontline community members, community leaders, organizers, activists, and environmental advocacy professionals to share resources, learn about neighborhood-specific issues, identify sustainability strategies, and create a shared vision and action plan towards both short- and long-term goals to protect the health of Houston communities. Learn more about the different sessions and speakers on Citizens Environmental Coalition's page on this community summit. You can find tickets for this event on Eventbrite, but seating is limited, so don't miss out on this fantastic opportunity to create a greener, more resilient Houston. I hope you guys have a great and wonderful day.
0: Thanks, Sienna. Up next time on Gulf Streams, the environmental history of Houston. Why is Houston where it is? How did the city grow into the sprawling metropolis we know today? And, as the city evolves, what can we learn from our past development that might help us better plan for the future? If you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081 or email me at WestonT at rice.edu. Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and the Rice Center for Environmental Studies with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio. produced by Weston Twardowski, co-produced by Joseph Campana. Audio engineer Rico Enriquez. Research support provided by Jaden Bray Boyce and Sienna Yen. Stay tuned for the R&R Show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston.